Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Jesus said, a woman's life does not consist of the abundance of her possessions, no matter how many she has. So I was thinking, as an older man, wait you say, uh, Merle, you're not an old man yet. Thank you very much. So how do I know this? Well, several years ago, Phyllis and I bought a new VW Bug, and in good Mennonite tradition, we chose one that was bright red. So one evening after we had bought this new car, we were taking my mother out for dinner. Phyllis was meeting us at the restaurant, so I went to Landis Homes to pick up mother. And when she came out and saw this new car, she wasn't sure she wanted to get into it. But eventually she got in and saw how roomy it feels inside, and she sort of relaxed. So just for fun, I thought I'd demonstrate the considerable capacities of said vehicle. So I zipped out of there and stepped on it around the corner so fast that mother had a grab hold to hang on, and her voice was part youthful excitement, part amazement, and part worry as she said, Merle, slow down. You're driving too fast for an older man. So there you have it from no less authority than Ruth H. Good, and that was several years ago. So as I was saying, as an older man, you'd think I would have figured this out by now, a long time ago. Jesus said, a teenager's true life is not made up of the things that she or he owns. So here's the question. Our church uses words like community and consensus, accountability and empire a great deal. So if any member of our congregation is thinking of buying a new car, whether pre-owned or never owned, uh, how much would they spend on that new to them car before they would need consensus from their small group that that purchase is an act of discipleship? What? Well, if it only costs $4,999.99, no problem, right? But if it costs, say, $75,000, does that member need the permission or blessing of someone or some group from this congregation, small group, Sunday school class, church board, pastors? I won't even start in on houses except to ask, how much or how little would Phyllis and I need to spend on a new house or compound before we would need to get clearance, permission, blessing, consensus, whatever, from some person or some group here at church. I can see some of you are starting to grin. We're not that legalistic, you say. Be reasonable. Jesus said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of heaven. When I was growing up, our ministers preached a lot about materialism, humility, modesty, nonconformity, faithfulness. Later during my college days, I heard a whole new batch of words. Relevance, the death of God, ethics, self-esteem, the city, third world, and affluence. When I started hearing that word affluence, I wasn't too sure about it. It sounded to me sort of like a college word, like a sociological term that was imprecise 
why not just say rich or wealthy or materialistic? Affluence. Then in the 70s and 80s, it was all about the simple life, accountability, living more with less, community, and peace, peace, peace. Lately, the tone and vocabulary have changed again. Now everything is justice, empire, proportionality, green, alternative, and tolerant. And Jesus said, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Have you ever noticed that one of the most effective arguments to belittle concern about affluence is to ask, well, uh, where does conscientious living end and affluence begin? The questions roll on, is it, is it wrong to own a house? Should one always drive a used car? Is living below your means actually an inverse expression of pride? Who in the church can say how much is too much? How do we know that some of those people aren't just stingy and selfish when they brag about living the simple life? Lots of questions. But the questions of Jesus don't go away. What do you possess? And what possesses you? To me, affluence means placing too much value on material things. It's a disease of those who have too much and of those who have too little and of the rest of us in between. It's an attitude toward our possessions and how that shapes our understanding of who we are and how important we think we are. Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I heard a story recently of a young Mennonite couple who were trying very hard to live the simple life. They had some friends over and they ordered a pizza. And when the delivery guy shows up with the pizza, the couple disappeared into the next room. And the guests and the delivery guy could hear, overhear the young couple in the next room debating how much to tip the delivery guy. Back and forth they debated between $1 and $2. Back and forth. And finally, after a few minutes, they reemerged and paid the guy $1. Now, we could discuss all the elements in that little episode for at least a half hour. We're very good. We're expert at discussing this. It's the corrosive seduction of the spirit which can make any one of us into a shallow, callous, self-centered snob, whether we possess many or few material things. It's what affluence does to our head that makes it so dangerous. The same can be true of edfluence. I define edfluence as placing too much value on formal learning and securing degrees. This description may seem rather difficult for some to, to grasp, especially those persons with advanced degrees. Many formally educated persons with respectable degrees deny that they suffer from edfluence and emphatically argue that formal education is always good because it liberates and broadens persons. But people who have placed less capital 
in formal education often find it easy to spot influence. They see that same corrosive seduction of the spirit. And as with affluence, it's what influence does to our heads that makes it so dangerous. The debate is less about how much formal education one should possess than it is about the attitude and how it affects our self-image. Many academics assert that they live simply and have few possessions, but others may observe their wealth and their very heavy investment in formal schooling to secure those degrees. Those degrees, along with a house full of books, along with resumes and published articles and books, represent as potent a holding of capital as a business person may have in his or her retail store, manufacturing shop, or ad agency. Those questions of Jesus are still there. What do you possess and what possesses you? Business entrepreneurs and academic entrepreneurs are often very similar in their, over, their outlook and motivation. But our churches have tended to chide only the business persons, even while soliciting donations from them to, to uh, shore up flagging institutions, some of which are actually educational institutions. This practice by the churches results in academics many times assuming that their motives and their work are more pure. Furthermore, many in the church seem to have decided that it would be impolite to witness against influence of their members. Both types of entrepreneurs have capital, possessions. Both use language and structure to exclude the majority while keeping their own positions safely established. Both tend to live in segregated neighborhoods, an upper-class community for executives, a university-style neighborhood. Both risk the danger of thinking that God and others may not be as important as others think. But affluence and influence are not attitudes which are limited to those with ambition and drive. Some of the rest of us face their seductive powers too. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Go and give up all of your degrees and all of your material things. Go and empower the poor and the poor in spirit and then come and follow me. And when he heard this, the man was shocked and went away grieving, for he possessed a great deal. Perhaps we should ask ourselves, why do I want this thing? Whether it's a new house or a new degree, why, why really do I want it? Why am I so impressed with this thing and other people? What are my real motives? There's a whole factor of travel fluence, too. I spared you that one this morning, but uh, I'll say a little bit about it. I'm sure you've seen it. You may have even observed it in me. I'm probably the, the guilty party. There's a discussion going on in a church setting, and then someone pipes up and says, I just came back from Mitreka stand, and the people there told me that that's not the case. And that's the end of it. The person who travels can act like an expert whether it's true or not. People are even so intimidated that they don't even ask what part of the world Mitrekistan is in. Jesus said, 
those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life, lose their life for my sake or for the sake of the gospel will save it. What gain is it for a person to gain the whole world and lose one's own, own soul? And what can a person offer to buy back that soul after it's been lost? Why are we tempted to accumulate? Why is it so important to us to feel superior to others? I wonder how many small groups question one of their members who's thinking of pursuing a college or graduate degree. I remember uh, years ago I taught the youth class here at church and um, one of the um, persons in the class who was uh, not too entertained by the class um, announced that she had been accepted at such and such a college and I just said, uh, I asked the other people, I, think, I said, do you think that she should be allowed to accept that on her own? Shouldn't the church have to approve that? And she went, what? Rather than assume automatically that it's a good thing if you can afford it, aren't there questions which might be helpful in the Christian walk? Of course, many small groups have long ago ceased to quiz members who are buying new cars and gadgets, moving to better neighborhoods, or accumulating property, stocks, and bonds. Which leads us to another question. Is there more preaching and writing in Mennonite circles against affluence than against influence? My observation is that the more formal education Pastor A has, the less likely Pastor A will be to raise concerns about influence. And the reverse tends to be true. The more closely Pastor B is tied to wealthy families and members of the congregation, the less likely Pastor B is to raise concerns about affluence. This is all complicated by the fact that the church is in the education business. Our denomination owns high schools and colleges and seminaries. All members are encouraged to think of themselves as shareholders. Therefore, to be a good company person, one does not raise concerns which may undercut those educational institutions which the church owns and operates. Imagine what would have happened if the church had owned a series of upscale restaurants. What do you think the chances are that the More With Less cookbook would ever have been published? Incidentally, Edfluence may be as much a seduction at one of our church schools at a secular university. Just like I think affluence is a temptation whether one works for a Mennonite or Christian employer or for a company owned by non-Christians. It all boils down to this. What does our accumulation of formal learning or of material goods do to our head? Which brings me to a prayer of mine. I covet for myself and my generation and for our children and grandchildren Two, quality, two qualities which seem to be out of style these days, wisdom and humility. What is wisdom, you ask? Isn't that the same as learning? Well, actually, wisdom and learning are really quite different. Learning is easily gotten, but it generally does not lead to wisdom. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. I did a lot of thinking about wisdom and humility during my three years in an Ivy League seminary many years ago in New York City. 
Were the profs and students bright? Yes, very. Was there the best of knowledge available? Absolutely. And were my teachers and fellow students more wise than the folks back at Hammer Creek Mennonite where I grew up? Not really. In fact, I came to believe that I might find genuine wisdom more readily among the common people than among the educated elite. With each new sweeping thesis and with each of the oldest and newest theologies, I resorted to a little test that many educated persons would undoubtedly laugh at. With each new vision of the kingdom of God, I would ask, how does my dad, Ira Good, measure up in this theory and system? That's how I stayed sane in seminary. My father was a farmer preacher with all of eight grades of education. But he had a gift of wisdom and humility, which was one of the greatest influences on my life. So if my dad was marginalized in some new theory or theology, it was suspect in my book. Because in, in any theology where my dad did not come out as one of God's people, and I'll tell you, a lot of these theologies are very narrow, if there wasn't a place for dad, I knew it was suspect. Isn't it possible that the more we accumulate, the more narrow we become? Sometimes it seems that persons with lots of material goods tend to regard most of God's humankind as peasants. And persons with lots of academic goods tend to regard most of the rest of the world as intellectual peons. Present company accepted, of course. Is it a given that the higher the income, the lower the esteem for other folks? The bigger the university degree, the smaller and more narrow-minded the attitude toward others. More often handicaps persons. Seeking more blinds us to our own shallow smallness. Is the resurrection simply a promise that we will be part of the powerful and elite? What does this have to do with a vision for the future of our congregation? For me, a lot. I am more concerned that we cultivate wisdom and humility for our children rather than pressuring them to accumulate pre prestigious degrees and material respectability. This congregation does exhibit much of the spirit of wisdom and humility. That's why I go here. But we must always be alert. The spirit of affluence and influence is so seductive all around us and our children. Am I suggesting that someone with a prestigious degree cannot enter heaven? Not exactly. But it's not easy. It takes effort prayer, and the support of Christian sisters and brothers. The same is true with someone who's worth a few million dollars. Can she or he enter heaven? Maybe. But it's not easy, according to Jesus. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it. What do you possess? What possesses you? 
person's life does not consist, consist of all that one possesses. If affluence and edfluence determine who's in and who's out, who may speak and who may decide, and even how we define who we are, then humility and wisdom will long ago have disappeared to other hearts more open to the voice of God. Would you join me in prayer? Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Amen.